invite you to turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Going to finish up the chapter this morning and, and thinking about the passage that Greg read. It does have some of what of a tie into our text this morning merely because that text is all about what Greg read, that God keeps his promises. He made a covenant promise to Abraham's family, to his son Isaac and to his grandson Jacob, and God kept that promise. And we're going to see here the promise-making and promise-keeping God serve in that similar function on an individual basis, whereas in Genesis 47 it was on a national basis. So we left the man who was healed of lifelong blindness last week making the blessed profession, I once was blind, but now I see. He knew a little about his healer, but not a lot, not everything. He knew his name was Jesus. He knew he was a prophet, at least a prophet. He knew it was unlikely that he was a sinner. He knew the Pharisees hated Jesus. He knew those associated with Jesus would suffer excommunication. They'd be kicked out of the synagogue. And he knows that his parents abandoned him because of that. And now what we're seeing is his faith flowering right in front of our eyes. It's truly a blessing for God to ordain and then record this particular instance for us, for our benefit. We get to see more of this man's conversion than we get to see really of anybody else's in the New Testament. Apart from maybe uh, Peter and Nathaniel in the Gospels, we don't see much more of anybody else's conversion experience and moments around it except for this man's. And in a, in a sense, in the New Testament uh, canon, his conversion is like the inverse of Paul's conversion, right? How does Paul's conversion go? He once saw and then he became blind, right? He blinds him on the way in order to save him. And then Jesus, he takes this blind man and gives him sight. And then both of them afterwards immediately defy the Pharisees uh, and proclaim the truth of the scriptures. So it's good for us to see someone born again into Christ and not be a perfectly knowledgeable Christian. It's easy to write off Paul and go, well, that's not, you know, typical. I mean, he already had a super biblical education. I mean, he already had like a PhD from a theological seminary. He just had all the wrong perspectives and interpretive principles on it. And you see, that's like thinking, you know, if I'm going to be like Paul, then that's like saying I can be like Michael Jordan and just go play pro baseball in the middle of playing pro basketball. He was already a pro athlete. He already had the skills and the discipline and the giftings and all those kinds of things. But this guy, in chapter 9 of John, seems like to us he's just a regular guy. And he's saved out of just normal disbelief. He's not a rabid, slobber-slinging Pharisee going to kill Jews in Damascus. He's just, this is just a regular guy. He doesn't really have any kind of committed false belief. He didn't know anything about Jesus at all before he was healed. But now he can stand for Christ because he's experienced conversion. So this is not like Michael Jordan going to play pro baseball. This is like that movie, The Rookie. Remember that story? That kind of gives us all hope. Well, if I'm a baseball coach and I teach chemistry out in Big Lake, Texas, I can go play for the Rangers. I mean, I could really do it. That guy did it. He's just a regular everyman like me. So this guy is a little more like that. It's also good for us to see that this man is forced to stand for Christ against those who hate Jesus immediately after being saved. That's good for us to see. It's like a baby deer. A baby deer is born, and his legs automatically can hold him up, right? 
Why? Because you may be born and the wolf pack may show up right then. You've got to run right when you're born. That's like us as Christians. We're Christians. We're born again with legs to stand on. We may not know everything about Jesus. We may not have fully grown antlers with which to fight or defend ourselves. But we do know this. We once were blind and now we can see. So watching the rest of this chapter unfold is going to be the equivalent of a tennis match. Now, I know I'm stepping out on a limb here. I know we're a bunch of football-watching Americans, and I'm not going to explain the rules of tennis. It's not going to do that. We don't have the time to do that kind of thing. But let's think about this kind of analogy for the rest of this story. A good tennis player, as the match goes on, his serve gets stronger and more accurate. He's not fatiguing down the stretch, getting stronger as the, as the match goes on. And an average tennis match, not the big ones that they're on TV, but an average tennis match has three sets. And inside those three sets, they're serving and returning and the ball's going back and forth. We're going to see, in a sense, three sets of serves and returns coming from the man born blind and now healed, and then the Pharisees as they're continuing to debate with them. And I'll give you a spoiler alert. The blind man wins, but he doesn't win against the opponent that you may think that he's playing against. So the first set of this tennis match comes in verses 24 through 29. Let me read 24 and 25 just to get us set back up. We looked at these last week, but it's important. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They just can't take his answer. What did he do? Tell us again. They're repeating themselves. This is the third time he's been asked this, second time by the Pharisees. Are they just digging for more incriminating evidence? Are they hoping he's going to crack and deny Jesus? Or they just are riding this carousel. We've already ridden around this carousel. We already know these aren't real horses. And they don't get up and walk. You're just going around in circles. They're grasping at straws. But here comes the first serve of the first set. Look at verse 27. He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? The fastest serve on record right now is probably about 150 miles an hour. This is a 150 mile an hour serve right down the line. Listen to what this guy is saying. There's a bit of satire. Where does this boldness come from? What's gotten into this guy? He doesn't mildly repeat what he's already said before. He, he, he doesn't kowtow to their intimidation tactics. He doesn't play the victim. And he's not just trying to, I just want my miracle and go live my best life. He's not doing that either. This brother has gone on the offensive against the most powerful authorities in his people group. The Romans are there, surely, but these are the most people he's got to be afraid of. And he uses a bit of satire. He's like, I've said this already, and you didn't get it. Why are you asking me again? Oh, is it because you want to be his followers too? Is that why? He's mockingly pointing out their question is absurd. How many times do you have to ride around this carousel before you realize these aren't real horses? You're just going in circles. That's what this guy is saying. This man is somebody who's saying without saying, my answer is not changing. I'm not backing down to you. 
your best course of action is actually just to go and follow Jesus. That's what you should do. But I know you're not going to do that. He's being satirical, even sarcastic. The, what, the Pharisees pressing on this guy, what's it doing? All it's doing is making him more sure, more confident, closer to Christ. That's all it's doing. Where did this resiliency come from for this guy to say this? It didn't come from his parents. They folded immediately, like the Buffalo Bills in the Super Bowl. They just folded. It's a 90s reference. Some of you kids aren't going to get that. It didn't come from his church. They're the ones persecuting him. Where did it come from? It came from God. 2 Timothy 1, 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. He's not afraid of them. And his words are very measured. He's not out of control. He's got self-control. His love for Christ cannot be quenched because he's been given a new spirit, a spirit of love. See, God doesn't make us new creatures, make us children of his family, and then not equip us, not enable us, not strengthen us. He fills us with his spirit immediately upon our conversion. The spirit of the living God is in us immediately on conversion. And that's what's working in him is the spirit of God, enabling him to stand. And that same spirit's in us. So that's the first serve. Here's the one coming back over. Here's the return. Verse 28. And they reviled him, saying, you are not his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. You are his disciple, rather, but we are disciples of of Moses. Sometimes in tennis, when you're returning a serve, the hardest possible thing is when they hit it and it bounces right to your racket hand hip pocket because you can't really, what do you do with that? And the best you can hope to do is just block it. Just get some strings on it and then it'll float back over the net. That's the best you could hope for when a serve like that comes. And that's all that they did. They're just trying to get a racket on it. They're like, this is the first century theologically sophisticated uh, response of, I know you are, but what am I? That's just what they said. No, you are his disciple. I know you are, but what am I? You don't know who we are. We're with Moses. That's what they're replying with. You know what this shows? You've got to see this in the Pharisees. A level of insecurity in the scriptures and a desperate attempt to retain some modicum of respectability. So they say, without saying, I know you are, but what am I? No, you're his disciples. We're with Moses. The blind man pointed out how absurd it is for them to ask him yet again how the miracle happened. They know they're grasping at straws, and the blind man just made it public. You're grasping at straws. She shows no fear of them. Everybody else kowtows to them. This guy won't. He won't do it. So they say, I know you are, but what am I? Verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Their identification with Moses is not misplaced, but it is misunderstood. We've looked at this before, but they're thinking Moses is the end-all, be-all to all revelation of God. And he wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. Yes, he's a major figure, absolutely. He's the greatest, of, he's the most humble of all men. And the end of Deuteronomy goes on to describe Moses' grandeur as a human who is fallen and flawed, nevertheless. But even Moses knew, I'm not the end. Someone's coming after me. Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophet like me who's coming. He's coming after me. He'll be here after me. Jesus has already addressed this misguided allegiance to Moses in John 5. In John 5, 45 and following, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom is you have set your hope. 
For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus already addressed this. You have a misguided or a misunderstanding of what your allegiance to Moses should be. It's not misplaced. Moses is a biblical author. But you have a misunderstanding of who he is. That's why it's so critical in Matthew 17. We don't have time to go there. That when Jesus is transfigured on that mountain, who is there with him? Elijah and Moses. And what are they doing? They're affirming Christ as the Son of God. A massively critical moment in the history of the church. So what they question here is the source of Jesus's authority, since they know the source of Moses's authority. That's what they're doing. See, the conflict is not between Moses and Jesus. The conflict is between Moses and the Pharisees, and that's what they can't see or understand. So now we move to the second set of the tennis match, verses 30 through 34. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. See that exclamation point in your Bibles? It's supposed to be there. This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Now the serb just came in at 160 miles an hour down the line. He's lost all concern about his future status in the nation of Israel. He does not care. He doesn't care. He just keeps getting bolder and bolder. He's just rearing back and letting the truth rip. He's openly mocking them now. Not satire. Open mocking. They keep coming back to Jesus' supposedly mysterious providence as if, well, if we can just discredit where he's from or where his authority lies, then we can just disregard this miracle that undeniably happened in front of our faces. That's what they're really thinking. Somehow, this nobody from nowhere is doing earth-shattering miracles, and the Pharisees don't know anything about them. And this is what the guy says, aren't you supposed to be the gatekeepers of Israel? How did he slip through? Aren't you guys supposed to be the ones who are in charge of everything that happens religiously and socially? Everything flows through your filter. How did he sneak up on you? How did this one get away from you? That somebody here exists and can do these kinds of things, and we're just now seeing it? The guy's in his 30s. How did you not see this? You guys missed it. He healed my eyes. You don't even know who he is. You had no idea who he is, but yeah, he gave me my sight back. It's pretty shocking for you guys. This is what he's saying. What does it say about you, Pharisees, keepers of all truth and order, that this happened on your watch and outside of your sanctioning? I mean, this is a direct affront to their leadership over the people. In verse 31, he continues on. He's not done. He doesn't just, he's not taking a jab. Now he's going to make an argument. Look at verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. This is the boldest thing he's ever done so far. He's going to give these highly educated theological scholars an, a, a lesson on basic Bible knowledge. That's what he's going to give these guys. That's like walking in to the lecture hall and Albert Einstein is midstream lecturing on theoretical physics and you just say, hey Al, I want to stop you right there. Let me go ahead and work with you through the multiplication tables. It's easiest to start with ones, fives, tens, and elevens. That's where we'll start, okay Al? And then I want to work you through these things. That's exactly what they're doing. 
This nobody from nowhere is coming and saying this to these guys just hours ago. I mean, keep putting yourself back in his shoes. Just hours ago, where is he? And then now he's kicking down Johann Bach's door, the famous composer, and saying, hey, I don't know if you know how to play Jingle Bells on the piano, but I'm going to show you. And he goes, dun, 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 dun. This is, I'll show you the even easier way. That's what he's doing. Where is he hours ago? Hours ago, he's sitting alone, destitute, begging on the side of the street for money and food to stay alive in perpetual darkness because he's blind. That's where he is just hours ago. Now he's standing before the most powerful people in his ethnic group saying, we know this from the Bible. He's saying, we, like, I'm, I'm a teacher as well amongst all of us. And the Pharisees would be thinking, what do you mean we know this to be true if you know anything it's because we taught you and you're now going to talk to us like this this is one of the most socially audacious moments we have recorded in the four gospels this is a massive moment here's the truth though that we can affirm from this moment the truth for us the newest baby christian knows more truth than the most highly educated unbeliever the newest baby Christian knows more truth than the most highly educated unbeliever. Not because God secretly infuses you with all knowledge and all wisdom. Not because of that, but because of Romans 1.18. What do unbelievers do? All unbelievers do. In that verse, it says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So a baby believer now knows the truth and has been brought to God through the truth. Capital D, capital T, truth. Jesus himself knows more truth than the most educated unbeliever. The, new, the unbeliever is stumbling around in the darkness. What does the new believer have? Eyes to see the light, filled with the light of Christ. Pharisees have more diplomas than beggars, but a beggar with the Holy Spirit has more wisdom than all the learned. That's what we can take away from this moment. Let's break down what he actually said. He says this in verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners. Is that true? Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished my iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Proverbs 28, 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Yes, the Old Testament confirms that God does not hear the prayers of those who love and cling to their sin second thing that he says but if anyone is a worshiper of god he does his will god listens to him is that true psalm 34 15 the eyes of the lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry psalm 145 19 he fulfills the desire of those who fear him he also hears their cry and saves them yes the old testament confirms that god does hear and worship and obey or those who worship and obey him so now He's just made a propositional statement. We know God doesn't listen to sinners who will not repent, and he does listen to those who have repented. He's made this propositional statement, and now he's going to arrive at a deduction from that statement. Did this guy go to law school? I mean, this is, this is a sophisticated argument. So 32 and 33, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So here's his three-point argument. Jesus did an otherworldly miracle that history knows nothing about. No Old Testament prophet ever healed anyone born blind, born blind, lifelong blindness. 
and it's never been heard of anywhere else. No pagan could duplicate it. No, no charlatan has even tried or attempted to make it an illusion of it. And secondly, therefore, this miracle then must be an outright display of unquestioned authority over the natural order. It has to be that. And who has unquestioned authority over the natural order? God alone. And the third part of his argument, now, if that's the case, then there can be no other conclusion that this man, Jesus, is indeed from God, at the very least, if not God himself. He has to be. Because we know that God doesn't turn his attention, love, or affection to people who cling to their sin. And because this miracle has to have been done by someone with the power of God. Now, what's the best impromptu speech you've ever given? Was it as good as this? I mean, this is unbelievable. All this is is just the truth of Matthew 17, 17 through 20. We don't have time to read it. But when Jesus is telling his disciples, when they drag you in front of authorities for associating with me and for preaching about me, don't worry about what you're going to need to say in that moment. I'll give you what to say. The Spirit of God will give you what to say. He's living that moment right now. Now, when this brother woke up that day, blind as a bat in a cave at midnight, looking forward to another day of begging on the streets, no hope, nothing good promised to him, I don't think he had it in his mind that day that he would be defending a man named Jesus against an angry group of the most powerful people in his society called the Pharisees. I don't think that he was planning on that at all. But isn't it wonderful when Jesus interrupts your expectations and your plans? This is what's happening in this man's life. This is what true conversion looks like. This is what it looks like to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And it's not him, it's the Spirit of God in him. So then, here's the answer in verse 34, the return. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. When you've been embarrassed, humiliated publicly, and you have all the power, you don't take your ball and go home. You puncture the ball with an ice pick, and then you chase that kid out of the neighborhood. That's what you do. The, 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 game, the, the match wasn't over. You just smashed your racket on the ground and threw it at the guy and chased him out of the stadium. That's what happened with these Pharisees. Who do you think you are, you poor, non-elite person of no family of any kind of significance? You were born in utter sin. You know what that means? They're saying, hey, guess what? You guys were debating this earlier, whether or not it was his sin or his parents' sin. It was his sin that made him blind. He did some prenatal sin, and that's why he was born blind. That's how he's so disgusting. That's what they're, that's, that's, that's poking the ball and going home. And here's the irony. They asked him. They asked him for this thing. He didn't seek this out. He wasn't a rabble rouser getting the people up against him. He was brought to them by his neighbors and supposed friends, abandoned by his parents, accused of lying, all because something happened to him. And the attention turned to him. He didn't go seek this out. He pays the price that his parents were unwilling to pay. He gets kicked out of the synagogue. They distance themselves from him and from Christ. They get to stay in the synagogue. He knew this would be the price as well. Everybody knew. 
And though he had only been a child of God for mere hours, he was willing to pay the price to stand with his Savior and for his Savior. Meeting Jesus and receiving this miracle didn't make this man's life easier, but it did make his life better. He lost everything the world had to offer, but he gained Christ. Mark 8, 36, Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You get everything you want. You get the car, you get the house, you get the spouse, you get the money, you get the security, you get the fun, you get all of that. But you lose your soul. What does it matter? This man said, I don't care. <laughs> I'll, I'll get rid of all of that stuff. I'll get rid of all of it. He's on the narrow, hard road, but that's the only road. Here's the third set. The third set determines who wins. So if you're going to a third set, that means that you've played the first two. The third one's the determining set of who wins and who loses. And it may look like he lost to the Pharisees because he gets kicked out of the synagogue and now he's a social and economic and religious outcast and pariah. But he didn't lose. But he didn't win against the Pharisees either. They weren't really the opponent. Our enemy is not outside of us, but inside of us. The threat that's keeping us from eternal life, from being with Christ forever in heaven, and being right standing in front of a holy God, that threat, that enemy is not outside but inside of us. It's our own sin. This man won the victory over his sin, but it wasn't him who did it. It was Christ alone. He didn't bring this upon himself. He wasn't planning to have this happen today. Christ came in and radically changed his world. Not just changed it, flipped it upside down. Game, set, match. Jesus wins, and then this guy wins. That's who the match was really with. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and found him. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Notice what Jesus does not say. Hey, I'm really sorry that following me cost you so much. Man, that stinks. He doesn't say, man, I just feel terrible about what my miracle has caused you. Man, oh gosh, I just wish it hadn't been like that. He doesn't say, I wish it wasn't so hard to follow me. Man, I get it. What does he say? Do you believe? That's what he says. Are you really sincere? Or are you just someone who likes to argue with religious elites? Now, this may seem insensitive, but let's put ourselves in the scene. Put yourself in the scene with Jesus and this man. He's just paid a high price. The highest price underneath dying. The high price immediately after getting his physical recite returned. Now, Jesus is pushing in on, do you regret this? Do you wish this day never happened? Do you wish that you'd never met me? Would you go back and change anything? Do you want to recant your statements now? Now that the hammer dropped and you did get removed from the synagogue, do you want to just come back and alter that statement? Ah, I didn't really mean it. I'm sorry. Or do you have bitterness towards Jesus because what it cost to associate with him? That's why Jesus comes and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus is asking him this for our benefit. This man knows what he's going to say. Jesus knows what he's going to say. We are seeing it happen out loud with people asking questions and answering them so that we can see. This is for our benefit. So that Matthew 10, 32 and 33 has real legs on it. 
when Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. We need to see this happen. But let's not overlook this. Before we leave verse 35, Jesus came and found him. Don't overlook that. He gets kicked out. Jesus hears about it. And the first thing that Jesus does is go and find him. He doesn't insist, hey, follow me, and it's going to stink, and there's just that's just what it is, and I'm not going to really have to deal with it. But it's, you know, it's the best option you got. He doesn't say that. He promises to be our comfort and our nearness. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He promises to be with us in the valley of the shadow of death. Isn't that where David's shepherd is? He's not in front of the valley. He's not behind the valley. He's not above the valley. He's in the valley of the shadow of death with his sheep. Psalm 2710 just leaps off of the page when you pair it with this story. David says, for my father and my mother have forsaken me. It's one thing for the Pharisees. It's one thing for the neighbors. But my father and my own mother, this blind man can say, forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. The comfort of Christ that when you stand with him, we can't overlook it. Jesus even found him. One of my great heroes of the faith is named John Gibson Payton. He was a missionary from Scotland in the middle of the 1800s, 1850s to the 1890s. He goes from Scotland to the northeast coast of these islands called Vanuatu. Uh, in, in that time period, it takes three months on a boat to even get there. Three months just sitting on a boat with the same people eating the same through treacherous oceans just to get there. And then when you get there, the guys who got there before him were immediately killed as soon as their John boat hit the shore. Killed and eaten by the cannibals in sight of everybody else on the big boat. And they said, we're not getting off. And they left. Peyton hears that and he goes. And he's on this island called Tana. And he's ministering there for a long time. Several weeks, months in, his wife dies, his child dies, he's there alone, and all he's trying to do is share the gospel. He's giving him fish hooks, calico material, he's giving him hammers, he's giving him hatchets and things. Like he's being kind and gracious and loving and just trying to have worship. And they say out loud, We hate the worship. They hate him for it. So then you, you read half of his autobiography, and they're just like now to the point where all the natives are like, we are going to kill you and eat you. We're not kidding around anymore. We're really going to do it. And so he has one friend on the island who takes him in the middle of the night, and there's, you can just hear them running and yelling with torches, and they have muskets from the traders that would come and trade with them. Give them so now they have guns and they're cannibals. I mean, this is the worst of the worst. And all he's been trying to do is share with him the love of Christ. And so then his one friend hides him in this tree in the middle of the night and says, climb up in this tree. Let me read you the quote about that moment when he's running for his life. He says, I climbed into the tree and there was, and there was left alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul. 
that when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my sobbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone yet not alone, if it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence to enjoy his consoling fellowship. Isn't that unbelievable? He refers to it several times in the autobiography he, he, that he said, I'd go back to that tree because of the nearness of Christ. I don't save you and commission you and then leave you alone. I'm with you like he is with this blind man. And how does a blind man answer? In verse 36, he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? That is the heart of a converted person. He says, just point out who God's one is, and I'll believe. Just show me where he is. That's all I want. Tell me more of who he is so that I might believe in him. He wants God's Savior so badly. All he needs to be is shown him. That's it. That's a regenerated man. That's someone who the Holy Spirit has made new. Now he has the ability to repent and believe and call out for salvation. This is what the church throughout history has called effectual calling. That God's calling of his people has an effect. It is effectual. It has to happen. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says in question 31, what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. This man has a renewed will and an enlightened mind. He's persuaded to embrace Christ with abandon. The free offer of the gospel, just tell me who he is. Because remember, he still has never seen Jesus. He's seeing him now, but he's not putting it together. This is the guy who healed me. This is the first time he's looking at him. He didn't see him before he was blind. He just gobbles up the free offer of the gospel. Why? Because the true miracle that happened in John 9 was not physical sight, but spiritual sight given to him by the gracious, loving hand of God. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. It's exactly how he talked to the woman at the well, right? She says, I know the Messiah will come. And then Jesus says, it is he who speaks to you right now. And the she believes. And what is this man going to do? Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. If you sit alone and you read this story all the way through to get to this point, I don't know how you get to this verse, verse 38, and keep yourself from crying. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. This is unbelievable. Jesus heals this man, allows him to endure the trial and excommunication. He goes and finds him in this dejected, rejected state, offers himself to the man, and the man believes on the spot. All this man wanted was a Savior, and the Savior came right to him. Right what a glorious portrait of the grace of God to sinners like us. And, but it's not like Jesus hasn't done this kind of thing before. He has. We mentioned the woman at the well, but even after that, in John 8, 28, he, he says, follow me. Follow me. I'm the one. Some falsely believed, but what was the difference? What did, what did we see this man do that we didn't see those false believers in 6, 7, and 8 do? 
worship. He immediately worshiped Jesus. Those, what do those false converts do? Immediately debated Jesus. He worships. This man's knee was bowed in humility. Those other folks in the earlier chapters, their legs were stiffened in pride. James 4, 6 says without accident that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. A heart that won't worship is a heart that has nothing to be grateful for. A heart that bows low in worship is a heart that understands grace in the place of the hopelessness of sin. A heart that doesn't worship is a heart that doesn't belong to Christ. This man's heart belongs to Christ. Then here at the end of the chapter, at the end of the tennis match, the umpire has to make a pronouncement. Every once in a while that happens in tennis matches, the umpire has to speak to what's going on and evaluate and explain what's happening to this player or that player, what penalty they're getting or what allowance they're getting, whether they have a medical need or they've been taking too long or whatever. He has to speak, and he has a microphone up there to speak with. So Jesus, from that position, is going to speak. In verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus said that his presence in the world is a blessing to the blind and a curse upon the seeing. So this, I came for judgment, think of it less about like eternal condemnation and more like determination and more along the lines of distinguishing. I'm distinguishing between those who think that they can see and those who know that they are blind. That's what he's coming in the world to do. That those who are going to humbly receive the gift of sight, like the blind man, yeah, I don't care, rub whatever you got on my eyes. I'll take it. Versus those who are like, no, 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 I see. I don't need any mercy. I'm not in a desperate situation. I get it. So hold your horses, Jesus. I don't want that. Yet again, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? So Jesus, when he goes and finds this guy, this guy's somewhere near the Pharisees still, and Jesus is not afraid to say what he's going to say in front of them. All sincere boldness, he makes within earshot of them. He fears God, not men. He speaks the truth without diluting it. The Pharisees are proud, but they're not dumb. They get it. Okay, you're talking about us in some way. You're metaphor, but they don't really understand it all the way. So they ask, are we also blind? You think we're the blind guys? Verse 41, Jesus basically says, no, you're not the blind ones. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now you say, we see your guilt remains. He's like, no, you're not the blind ones I came to give eyesight to. You're the ones who think they can see but are actually blind. This is the same thing that he says in another way elsewhere in Mark 2, 17, when they're accusing him of eating with sinners and prostitutes and the lowly. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Healthy people don't go to the doctor. People who think that they're healthy don't go to the doctor. That's what we're dealing with with here. That they're not going to... Who, who, who doesn't need medical assistance or medical treatment says, yeah, I want medical assistance and medical treatment. That's not how it works. You have to know, hey, my arm is broken, or I can't see, or I, my legs gave out, or my, my stomach is killing me. You go to the doctor because you feel the pain. You feel the disorder. So you go. People convinced that they are accepted by God don't think that they need a Savior to make them acceptable. So when the Savior is present or presented, they reject him based on their self-righteousness. This is how Dr. Joel Beakey said it. 
about this verse. He said, when people are ignorant of God's truth, but are open to being corrected, their sinful state is less of a, of a deterrent. Such people have hope that God may save them. But those adamant in their proud opinion that they are right are hardened in their unbelief. And this is just another way for the Proverbs to say it in verses, or chapter 28, 26, verse 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for him than for a fool. Or there's more hope for a fool than for him. Wise in your own eyes, there's more hope for a fool than for that one. So this whole chapter, all of chapter 9, all of these 41 verses boil down to this one point. Jesus came to save those who are aware of their hopelessness and desperate for help out of it. The blind man knew he was blind. He knew it. And of course he wanted to be able to see, including, he'd let any treatment happen to him, period, including a stranger who's going to put mud spit in his eyes and then tell him, go find your way to the pool and it'll work, I promise. He's willing to do that because he's so aware of his blindness. But Jesus does not save those who are convinced they are already accepted by God based on their own works and based on who they think they are. The Pharisees were so self-righteous and so self-confident that they openly denied an undeniable miracle. That's how blind they were. They were so spiritually blinded that a baby Christian knew more about God than they did. See, this dynamic exists in our day in spades. Pew Research Center, I'm going to conclude with this. Pew Research Center did a study of Americans in 2018 about what they believe about God. Nine in ten Americans said they believed in a higher power, just generic higher power. Less than, or, or, or barely half said they believed in the God of the Bible. There's a lot of other stats in this study, but here's the most daunting one. 70% of Americans, according to this Pew Research, non-Christian, just kind of secular research uh, coalition, 70% of their research said, or, or, or their research said this, that 70% of Americans who do not believe in the God of the Bible, they just believe in a generic higher power or spiritual force even, said that they believe that God, whoever he is, accepted them just the way they are right now. That they don't need anything, that if there is a God, then he wants me exactly like I am right now, and I'm fine with him. There is no distance between me and him. There is no problem between me and him. 70%. Of Americans. That's exactly what Jesus has addressed in this chapter. The Pharisees believed God accepted them on their own, as they were, without a savior, without a sacrifice, without a blood bought purchase. That he wanted them exactly like that. So, this is the equivalent, that statistic that we just read, that's the equivalent of Jesus coming up to the blind man with the mud in his hand and he slaps the hand away and says, No, don't do that. I'm not blind. I'm not blind. I don't need your help. I don't need what you're offering. That's what we're living in and around us right now. The blind man didn't do that, though. He knew of his desperate situation. He longed for rescue from it. The Pharisees were confident that they had spiritual sight, but they were blind. The blind man was confident in Christ to give him spiritual sight that he did not have before. See, our duty in the Western world has increasingly become that we need to make people aware of their blindness before we can tell them of Christ's ability to heal blindness. Because they, if they, you don't think that you're blind, then you don't want the mud on your eyes. Don't give me that mud. I don't want it. It's gross. We have to tell them that they're blind. And then what do we do? We take them to the one who can cure their blindness forever. 
their spiritual blindness forever. We have to lovingly tell them of their blindness, but then bring them to the one who is love himself, who can heal their blindness. Because what did Jesus say? I came into this world so that who may see? Those who know that they don't see. That's what we have to do. That, that's where we live. It's one thing to go uh, like David Brainerd in the 1700s, to go to the, uh, the Native Americans. He says that he went out there and the love of Christ was the most compelling thing to them because their gods were spiteful and, and, uh, and unstable and they had wars and they hated them and they had to make sacrifices to them to get them off their back. But the love of God, that's David Brainerd said, that's all I had to do. That's all I had to give them. But David Brainerd's colleague, Jonathan Edwards, he's, he's in Northampton, Massachusetts. He's having to tell those people who are convinced that they're going to heaven, he has to preach sinners in the hands of an angry God to them because they're the Pharisees. They're the ones who think we're not blind. When Brainerd goes to the Native Americans, they're like, yeah, we get it. We are killing each other. We are constantly running around. We, we are doing all these horrible things. The love of Christ compels them, but Jesus is having to say this, the, to, to them, if you know you're blind, then I'll make you see. If you don't know that you're blind and you refuse to admit it, I, I can't do anything for you because you won't come to me to be healed. That's where we live in our day and age. And aren't we glad that it's not up to us to spit in the mud to make it and put it on their eyes that we can take them to the one who can do that for us. And he's done it for us and he can take it to all who come to him. All who are humble, he gives grace. All. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we look at this man born blind and we all, all we see is ourselves. Lord, sometimes we see ourselves in the Pharisees. Thank you for giving us 41 verses of just one interaction that we know that if we can see it all it's because you came in your grace and you acted upon us and if we are, are stumbling around and we are living a life of, of rebellion against you we know that it's not you it's because we refuse to admit that we are blind Father may we have the heart of this man more blind may we forever retain his posture of worship of your son, of you, the triune God of the universe, that we would have hearts of worshipers. Father, give us as a church, as, the, as your people who have been given sight, give us the, the skill, the, the, the winsomeness, the, the tact as we go out in a culture that is statistically convinced that they're not blind. Show us how to have conversations with individuals because we have to, to talk to people one-on-one -on -one and to see where their blindness lies and to bring to bear the mud of the gospel so that they might see. Lord, Lord give, us, give us grace to engage with the culture. You, you've made us for these days. You've made us for these days. Forgive us for lamenting and wishing that there was something else that we live in a different time or that we could just get away from the, from the problems or from the, the drift of the culture or whatever that it is. But you have made us as individuals and as a collective body, as your church for this day. So give us wisdom to know what is foolish talk that we should avoid. Give us wisdom to know what is dangerous and must be addressed. And give us compassion, the compassion of Christ, the compassion of all who have faithfully served you throughout church history. 
to go to people who do not like us, who even hate us, with the good news of the gospel, that you are blind, but you can be made to see. And that only happens through believing in Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ described for, described for us in the Bible. Give us, give us a, a winsomeness to do that well, and, and a boldness to do it clearly and unwaveringly, that we are not angry, that we are not uh, vitriolic, that we are just confident that we once were blind, but now we see. That simple profession from this man used to glorify you, may that ring in us. We don't know all the answers. We aren't all biblical scholars, but we do know this. We once were blind, but now we see, and that's because of Christ alone. So we ask all of this for your name's sake and for your glory and through Jesus Christ. Amen. The men who are going to pass out the elements.